0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our the court Squash podcast. This questionable is over. And the words of Stuart Crawford, not Dr. Zeus. Don't be sad it's over. Be glad it happened. we got Joe Rejo from the, the head coach at Tufts joining us here to discuss the events. And uh, later on, we got a great guest in the form of the general, Gregory Gaultier. Fellas, how are we doing?
1: Great. Good. Recovered from 14 days of watching a
2: lot of squash. Yeah, doing well. Massive guest this episode. Jumbo Joe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where do we start? There's a couple of good really first rounds, a couple of noticeable performances to, you know, to, to mention, especially Patrick Rooney taking Joel Macon to five. And granted, you know, it's the first round for Macon. It was the second round for Rooney, who had also beaten uh, Rafael Kandra in the, in the round before. You had Gregoire Marsh beating Rodriguez in the round of two. You had Asylum a Farag, which was a clash of the titans in the round of two. And then Masuti. It's Chris, you had a bit of a hot take on Masuti.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. I know you love him. And, oh, uh big
0: fan. Masuti, you're the I, man. <laughs> I, I,
2: I like watching him too, but my, my take on him is he's just like addicted to Knicks. Like he'd he'd rather go out in a blaze of glory trying to hit Knicks than sometimes hit the shot that you know that might get him through the match.
0: Totally, totally agree. I think you know <laughs> by being young and excited and playing against some of these guys, he kind of feels he has nothing to lose. I think in the next couple of events that he plays against players at that level, he'll sort of start to realize actually I can maybe I can beat these guys if I can just manage my
2: nick addiction my my nick addiction <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i think i i can't remember the exact point where i texted you but i i remember texting you saying i have a take on masuti and uh i think it was something like you know i think it was like a 9 all point you know big uh tsn turning point as they call it in canada um and you know Does that you come know, from T- the what, what was it the house of nightmares or the house of dreams <laughs> no, no. House of Broken Dreams. House
0: of Broken Dreams, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but Masuti, like, you know, jumped off jumped off, um, in the air, jumping towards the back wall, yeah. went for some crazy, you know, over, around the house, around the around the head nick, and, uh, you know, it didn't work out well for him. And then it was like 10-9 match ball or something, and he was right in it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I once coached a player in Scotland that was very much of that, that same mentality. Not quite at that level, but didn't matter how badly he lost, as long as he hit one good neck, that's all he wanted to talk about. It's like, <laughs> but you lost 11-3, 11-1, 11-2.
2: He's
1: like, yeah, but my cross-court neck, that's all that matters.
2: Did, did you see that shot at 2-7 down in second, though? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That was a turning yeah. point. <laughs> Joe, I think we're all too used to that. No, I think – I still remember when Mazen
3: Hessian was just starting to play. You were like, yeah, he's great, but, like, you know, too many nicks, man. Where's the straight length? And, like, you know, the guy's trying to build the rally from the front two corners. It's like, what are we doing here? So, you know, I think these things happen a little bit. I think some guys – everyone thinks they're Rami Ashur. And so there's certain people who can do that kind of thing, but even he had to find the back of the court at some point. So, um, I just want
1: to say I, I never thought I was Rami Asshore. Not, <laughs> not once in my life have I ever hit that thought. <laughs>
0: I also said that man had the best length ever. Frightening how good it was. Who? Rami. Really? Me. Oh, yeah. sure oh, not me. No. <laughs> it, it was okay. You know, you had you had good days. I, I still, I can still, I can still remember the old whole forehand drive from the front right, forehand straight drive. That was it. Just, <laughs> just just kidding. Just kidding. Um, and then Galtier had a good old run. Really, he gave poor old Victor a a, a pace. Yeah,
1: I thought that was the best coach he's played for a couple of years. Um, Certainly the best he's moved. Um, Had some question marks about whether he could get his speed and explosiveness back, but that seemed to be sort of close to where it used to be at least. Um, I think the biggest concern now is getting his endurance and his stamina back so that he can play at that pace and sustain it for a full match. So saw that against Paul Cole, but he was able to live with him, but just was made to do so much work that he just doesn't quite have the, the same endurance that he used to.
0: But yeah, encouraging signs though. And he had no knee brace on, and I mean that seemed to take away the world and off his shoulders. And his commitment to the movement in and out of the corners was, jeez, I wouldn't mind moving like that at twenty one, let alone thirty eight. Oh,
2: well, I've never
3: never moved like that in my life. <laughs> I think, you know, it looked like I watched a lot of that Victor match and obviously it was his first round. And I think Victor probably looks up to him a little bit. So maybe he was a bit intimidated, but at the same time, he still holds the court middle of the court so well. And like varies the, you know, that backhand kill blank versus the deep one volleys, everything, you know, he, he's, he's super smart out there. He knows the game incredibly well, keeps everything super wide, super tight. He'll continue to have success. If he wants to kind of be out there, it'll be tough to physically do it with the rest of those guys, but the same time, you know, he's so tactical
2: and thoughtful with the ball. Probably enough. Yeah, the announcers were kind of – were all over him in the Paul Cole match that, you know, he should have used his Game 3 tactics earlier um, that he maybe just came out, came out a little too fired up and, you know, was burning off some of that uh, early energy by just kind of cranking the ball around. But um, he he definitely at points when he just kind of hit his spots – Really caused Paul a ton of trouble, um, and I think yeah, it, it, he's not gonna he's not gonna win the attritional battle against some of these young guys anymore.
1: It must also be tough when you've spent your entire career playing a certain way and having so much success to suddenly just switch it because you're not quite as athletic as you used to be. Um, just, I think, I think for me that was that was the first time I've seen him play since he came back from his. Um, injury problems that I've thought he could get back to the top 10 in the world so definitely think he can be encouraged by what he produced.
0: he is so good at squash. like regardless of his like the physical stuff he is so good at that left wall you could just watch it all day long Uh like you said Joe you've, he's got so many options he's so accurate yeah I'm Really excited to see now yeah, Manchester, Manchester and the British and the uh, and the World Open to see after a couple more matches at that level where he can go.
1: Is that your hot take after Gregory gote one of the best players of the last twenty <laughs> years, is so good at squash. <laughs> oh, man, <I> just
0: heard <laughs> he out, out eleven. Out <laughs> 11. Oh, he, is, he, he really is though. I just I hope I he's still, he, uh, he could play for a long time still.
3: I was at uh, Brown Camp, uh, Brown Squash Camp with Alan, and I still remember being like who's the toughest matchup? And I figured he's going to say Rami or Nick Matthew or whoever, but he was just like, no, Greg Gautier, every time I'm on court with him, I feel like I do 10 million, you know, miles of work. I'm all over the court. He's dominating the middle. And it was just like, he's like, it's brutal. It's brutal to play against him. Whereas like some of the other guys, I get a cheap 10. I maybe get in the rally, but he's like, gautier's like, I never even feel like I'm in the match really. It's just dominating the middle and it's kind of controlling the operation. I can, I can uh, second that. <laughs> yeah, I, I would third that. I've played him three times, and he's
1: the only player that has made me feel like I didn't belong on the court with him. I've been beaten by some decent players, but I've never been beaten by someone who simultaneously didn't appear to be even trying.
0: Lee Beachu, <laughs> Lee Beachu is
2: the, is the other guy that made me feel like that. I played Goche when I was 13 in an exhibition. I'll have to ask him about it later in the pod. When he <laughs> was it like, <laughs> see, see, see if he remembers that. Didn't you have a similar situation with JP where you ripped Nick and then he just bullied you the rest of the session? That was Nickel. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's it's, it's, it's funny. Fine. You guys have all played played these guys in real matches when you're adults. Adult. Adults. Adult. I think I played Will Strupp JP, uh, Peter Nickel, Greg Gojé when I was like 12, 13 in exhibitions. <laughs> I don't know if that means that we're just really old, Stuart. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I guess could I spin it so that way. I, I should have spun it that way. Good, good, uh, good spin, good Speaking of ageing, Gautier got
1: really annoyed with my team because we were talking about leading up to the match against Paul Cole, whether he got had a chance, because he obviously played so well in the first two rounds. And a couple of the boys on the team said, no, he's far too old. And I was like, whoa, he's two years younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't appreciate
0: this ageism here. <laughs> um, so moving on to the quarters, I mean, that's when things really started to heat up uh, after the call and uh, Galtier match being the highlight of the round of 16. Four great matches. You had Mara one in five. You had Dozuki saving four match balls against Farag to win in five. You had Mackin knock out the main man, uh, Mohamed El Shabagi, who, Stuart, that was your pick. Uh
3: I think, you know, beating Ali these days, I think is always really tricky. And I think, you know, Dasuki done it twice now. And like, I think that drives confidence a little bit, but I always think that he's just kind of floating around the court, never putting himself in bad spots. And so I think it's, it's really tough to, to get a W over him these days. I think everyone's intimidated by it a little bit. I always think like, you know, I talk to my guys a lot about, you know, oh, he's covering a lot of balls and you're having trouble winning the rally and you start getting more and more frustrated. Um, But I think, you know, Jasuki is just like pretty severe with his shots and, and can push up in the courts being super aggressive and, you know, was able to like exert some amount and is, you know, two wins. It's like, you kind of, I wouldn't say figured him out. It's hard to say you figured out Ali Farag, but definitely is a little bit of a statement. It's just like, I'm going to play at a top five level or I'm going to play the top three level. And I know how to win a rally against a guy who basically picks up everything that exists. And so, you know, I think it's probably huge for his confidence, and I think it probably, I think will probably lead to a couple more results. Not to mention, he seems like he's being way more calm on court, dealing with bad calls and, and just staying a little bit more balanced mentally during the course of the match, which is like,
2: well, that was a problem for him, you know, three years ago. Did you yeah, see the finals? Definitely scary, scary though, when he, um, when he play like, cause he, he plays pretty, pretty, pretty physical, physical and pretty gritty. And when he doesn't let anything affect him, he just like, he's just super tough. Like he's, he's kind of built, you know, built like a brick. He doesn't mind getting a bit chippy. And I think it's super tough for, for people to deal with that when he's not losing his own mind. Um, really but there, there was a, there was a point there in the frog to Suki match where my, uh my pick was looking real good because. You know, we, we talked about how hard it was going to be for Ali to roll through Abu Elgar, Asal, and then he's, you know, up 2-1 against Asuki. And I think in the – correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't he up fairly big in the fourth and Asuki, the yeah. monster comeback? Three match balls. He was tested yeah. up and up. Yeah, I was cruising. I was smiling over here. I was like, oh, yes, my pick's going to come out, Asuki.
1: One of the amazing things is that Asuki from – that match ball down position at 10-7 won 16 of the next 20 points because he took five in a row to claim that game, 12-10, and then he won the fifth, 11-4. Um, and again, I think that's one of the things that makes him so dangerous is that I can't think of anyone else that can rattle off a run of points like that against someone that moves and covers the court as well as Farai. And even, even Shabagi when he beats him, tends to have to sort of break him down bit by bit, and it's sort of long and drawn out. And... Um, Maybe Gawad, when he's playing his best, is the only other player that can just fire in winners against anyone, doesn't matter who they're, they're playing. I think Dusuki's this, starting to show that sort of level of ability. Well, he's always had that ability, but mixed with a bit more patience and a bit more calmness in the head and not getting quite as distracted or frustrated by what's happening on court makes him a real danger.
0: I think they couple with that as well, if you compare the, the, that match to... And the final's a really good example like that balance of, you say he rattles off a lot of winners and he can do, but there's then there's a balance. Like when he starts clipping a couple of tins, that balance then really is not like a, a sort of, what would you call it, the winner to mistake ratio really does change dramatically. And I think once he kind of, I think, I, it's hard to know. I mean, he's obviously one of the best players in the world. He's playing incredibly well. He's probably, it's hard to argue that he's not playing in the top two at the minute, considering the last two events. But that's only based on those two and maybe it doesn't mean a huge amount just yet. And we'll see in the course of the next eight, 10 to 12 months where, he, where he's really where he's at. But if he gets that balance right and if he can, if he makes a mistake, if he can have a strategy in place in his own mind to sort of think, OK, well, I've missed one or two here. Now let's get back to basics and then I'll start firing my winners again. It's, it's kind of it could be a whole different ballgame in terms of his consistency level to play at that level week in, week out for the duration of not just a couple of events, but for years.
2: Yeah. And it it did seem like it was a little bit more than just like, uh, you know, a little bit of a racket error or a tactical error. There were times where he'd rattle off two mistakes and hit himself into two easy strokes very quickly, right. Or a stroke and a no let like very quickly. So it, it did seem like a little bit of a, a severe kind of, you know, focus dip versus just, you know, maybe a bad decision here or there, but, but then he can snap back into the other mode super quickly, like you said, and just rattle off three or four really unbelievable winners from solid positions.
0: You know, and if we roll forward, we'll, we'll come back to it in a little bit more detail. Um, but if you roll forward to the final, and if you look at that fourth game, it was 14-12 to Marlon. He had, he had a couple of game balls himself, and we'll get, we'll get to that. But he'd hit six mistakes in that game before the tiebreaker. And it's he's ten nine up.
2: That's that's a lot.
0: Like that's just how good he is.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times I like like you know uh, between sport analogies, and if you look at somebody like Fed, way more winners, way more errors, and then guys like Nadal and Djokovic, way less errors, but they're more attritional in terms of how they play. They miss less balls. They put more balls in play. So it's just like I think there's two strategies to get through here. You know, you can make a few less errors. You can hit a few less winners, but you can be really steady or you can go for a little bit more. And and if you have the skill to execute it, I think he definitely has the skill to execute it. So it's just like you can live with a few mistakes because you're taking major chances and you know that your ratio of winners to, you know, mistakes is okay. And so it's just about believing in your skills, I think, and knowing good risks to take versus bad risks. And I think he's figuring it out more and more.
0: I think the, the one difference through there that I would argue with would be like if Federer makes a couple of mistakes, he steadies up his game. He dials in his technique, his movement, and so he feels comfortable again, striking the ball, and then he starts going for the winners again. And then they start rolling off like he doesn't, like he might have a dip in form, you're correct, but he'll bring it back up again. And so the one thing that we haven't seen necessarily enough of is that when when the, that error count increases from dazuki it doesn't come back up again. Uh, it like Or we haven't seen enough to sort of say that it has. Now, I think in my humble opinion, but from watching it if i was in his corner I'd be like okay if you if you've hit a couple of mistakes that's okay you went for them no dramas right let's steady the ship up let's get your technique dialed in let's start feeling comfortable on the ball hit a few more balls get a few more reps in and then get back into your attacking mode would be what i would sort of that's what, that's I, take what I take from, from, what, from what i, I see. see
3: you know like i'm sure chris is going to like this i'm a big believer in like shooter's going to shoot kind of mentality and so that Steph Curry doesn't get nervous because he makes a few mistakes. He misses a few shots. And so the question is, how is Duki responding to mistakes? Is he really letting him hold himself down? Or is he going to go again with like a fresh mindset every time that he makes a mistake? If you do and you have the skills, then you probably don't let it bother you that much. And so it's all about like, whether or not it's really bothering him and whether or not he's resetting in between points to kind of play another really nice rally and then put in something delicate again, um, or whether or not he thinks he really has to kind of do something that's more safe and smart and, and wait for more chances or whether or not he's just kind of ready to go for it again in the next point. I kind of think it's a massive part of, you know, knowing what kind of player you are and whether or not you're ready to assume this level of risk chance taking, you know, for a reason, you know, for a reason. Yeah. Uh, that's what we're saying though, is that like he's
0: making those mistakes and then he's making more mistakes as opposed to doing something about it. Um,
1: I think it's a similar challenge for Abogar as well. He's just, player that faces the same sort of difficulty in terms of getting his game right on the day Um, and another player that probably used to face it more than he does now and one of the reasons he's been so successful in recent years is probably Tarek who again would hit a lot of errors in certain matches and really struggled to get control of it when it was starting to run away from him but I think his balance, he's probably found that sweet spot that you're talking about Arthur where he's he's taking risks but doing it a little bit more, sort of methodically
0: and calculated. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think, and again, you saw signs of maybe him getting that balance a little bit better again this week. Man, uh, maybe over the last two tournaments than he
2: had since he'd won that World
0: Open. There's a lot of squash, huh? <laughs> he-
2: yeah, we haven't even we haven't even touched on your guy Arthur. Marvin. Oh, clever as a bag of cats. What a guy. <laughs> as a bag of cats. He,
0: he, I tell you what, he is so good at squash.
2: <laughs> un, un, unreal. And, it, and I mean, to his credit, like, it's hard to say people are fitter than him right now. I mean, he's consistently doing it. Um, he, he, he definitely looked like he was pushed pretty hard but he he kind of figures it out right he i think he thinks i think he thinks it so well and i think he has a pretty deep understanding of how he's feeling in different moments and can adapt really really quickly because he's clever as a bag of cats it's just like it's i i yeah i don't know what else to say i mean the guys i think he's thinking at at a slightly higher level than everyone else and he has the and he has all the stuff to go with it I think you said a really great line there like he has a deep understanding
0: of himself who he is what he's presenting out there he's so authentic even in his post-match interviews uh like he knows exactly what he's doing he's he looks full of confidence full of beans and i don't know if you guys saw the article with um it's on psa spitfire media and he's like he's got Three big targets, and he's not afraid to kind of say, "I'm no, I'm going for this. I'm going for world number one. I'm going for the world championships. I'm going for the British Open." And it's very hard to write him off. It's, it's I mean, he's re, he's he's thrown down a gondola there. It's it's uh, it's going to be an interesting few months. But,
2: and I, I think there are other players on the PSA in the top ten that do think the game very well, like him. They know the spots that they're trying to pick they they kind of they have a very good understanding of everything, but yeah. they can't do the same things he can do like he just has more weapons in his bag in so many different scenarios yeah. that he can execute on a higher level and and he's you know I think the difference between him and desuki is like we're saying desuki can can let two three four errors creep in fairly quickly, he'll make the occasional error and you know, he he usually doesn't stretch too far to, like, go for a shot that, you know, he probably shouldn't have. But he does make the occasional error, maybe being a little bit, you know, a little bit aggressive. And he just kind of is like he you can see he's like, OK, maybe, you know, maybe that was a little bit of a, you know, a heat check. And then he just keeps on moving. Yeah, for me, was impressed. Sorry, go ahead, sir.
1: I was just going to say, for for me, the most impressive thing with Marwan last week was the way he backed up physically from that match with uh, Paul Paul. Because we've always known that he's a smart player and tactically he's great. Technically, he doesn't really break down under pressure. But to be able to play a 96-minute match with what most people would consider the fittest player on the tour, um, to come through that, even though he actually started I'm not sure if he was cramping, but he was definitely experiencing some discomfort in that fifth game. Um, but he got through it and then he was able to come back the next day against Joe Macon, who had also had a tough match the previous day, but their their first game in that semi-final, I think, was 35 minutes. Um, and I think Joe was trying to send him a message that I'm going to try and challenge you physically. And Marlon just stood up, accepted the longer rallies, He's patient, it's so hard to make him do a lot of work because he just controls the ball well. He puts it in the right spot. He doesn't really open the court up for you at the wrong time. So he makes it really tough with, with his uh, tactical awareness to, to make him do a lot of work physically. And then again, the, the final, the final wasn't a particularly physical match with the There was a lot of, especially the first two games, quite short rallies and a lot of errors, but, I just I was really impressed with the way he was able to back up that match with Paul and just stay strong for the next two rounds as well and you could see he was he was determined to make that point as well he was talking about it in his his post match interview is about it's all about backing up coming, coming back the next day and he said after the semi final today's more important than yesterday and then tomorrow's even more important than today
0: I think that's two areas he's massively improved on like you say like he's technically always been brilliant and he's always been clever, but he's obviously physically worked on that really hard. And also mentally, like to mentally back up as well, because the mental fatigue and the stress that you have to go through in a match like that, and then to back it up the next day and, and all that good, uh, was just, it's super impressive. It's uh, Yeah, and he, he looks super confident um, with that. And then when things get a bit tight, if you look at all the tiebreakers that he played and all the big points, he won more than he lost. Hence, he... I suppose that's probably why he won the tournament. But there you go. <laughs> but like you know, you, you pick your moments to do certain things really well, and and yeah, he got rewarded. He's he's very good at that.
3: Amazing. Like thirty-five minute first game, it's just ridiculous. After playing Paul Cole the day before, like you know, it's just it's, just, it's a joke. And like I just feel like there weren't areas of the court where he has deficiencies. You know, it has weapons all over the place. Thought the backhand boast was a total weapon. He's great in the forehand right. He's great forehand mid court. You know, he just had. Choices everywhere and, uh, you know, against guys who, who, again, pick up everything as fit as you could possibly be. And he's just in there, seems non-fussed about the whole situation. Really impressive.
2: Um, and you can tell how much – I think you can tell how mentally challenging that final was with the Suki because – he he clearly needed to let off a little steam with the win, and he just uh, <laughs> he just let the racket sail out there like a like a lovely kite in the wind. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know you get but I don't think I don't think he does that unless well a how much that tournament meant to him, which I, I think he mentioned in the in the post game how, how you know special that win felt, and then I think how hard Dasuki makes it because he he does make it very physical he does make it very uh he makes you have to I think really choose wisely because he's so damn quick and these guys read the ball so well which I think will segue nicely into uh us getting getting Joe's Joe's take and uh get him to give us a little rant on on his his refereeing opinions but um yeah, I mean, the number of video referee calls in that final, which I think partially stemmed from the referee passing a bunch over, but also just I I think it's a sign of how how fast how fast these guys are, how crafty they are, how aware of the other guys options they are and just like how miserable they can make it to have to referee them. <laughs> like, you know, it it's it's not all on the referees. These guys are thinking thinking and moving and doing everything at such a fast level. And they're like almost guessing where their opponent's going to hit it. And then trying to, uh, make that situation work out in their favor. It's like, no wonder the rest are getting crushed out there.
0: It's like Neo from the matrix. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, no, I think, you know, in that Joel Macon match against Shurvagan, so many calls, so many video referee calls, just crazy, you know? And I think, um, It's tough because I think you lower the 10 and the guys are just, they cover, they're still covering the court so well. They're on every ball so fast. It's just, it's tough for these guys, but I do think they have to drive with no let. They have to drive with no let with these referees and make these guys play through. it's the cleaner way to play, make the guys hit winners. And like, yeah, like you're going to have to watch out for some blocking and you know, like, but at the same time, I think no let cleans up the game so much better than stroke and then everyone's going to stop, you know, people are just still running into each other's backs. We've got to get away from that. And it's just like, they're getting rewarded sometimes. Running into the guy's back, balls way off their body. They take a terrible line and it's like, oh, stroke, stroke. Sure. It's like, what are we doing here? You know, it's just like, I think I want to make the guys earn it. And the way to make them earn, I think, is you drive with no let. That sets the standard and you hope that the play kind of follows. And if you don't, if it doesn't, then you kind of do some other things. But I think no let, no let really cleans it up.
2: And where I think that goes wrong, though, is you I think it has to be like a match to match, which leaves a lot of ambiguity, which refereeing kind of naturally has. But if you start, I find as soon as they start to make these black and white calls, guys will get ahead of that and know which situations they're more than likely going to get a no let from if they play a certain quality of shot into a certain area and they'll just abuse it. So their movement off the ball will be a little bit harsher to make sure their opponent has to call a let. And then if the PSA makes a standard kind of like area of the court and no let, the guys are just too smart. And, and they're too, I think that's one thing I've noticed over the past few months here is the subtle, the subtle like way in which they move off, off the ball or move to the ball generally speaking is like ju- they're just trying to make it a little bit tougher on their opponent, which is, which is fair. But as soon as you get someone who doesn't mind that contact, they're going to go, they're going to play for contact. Like I think frog tends to move around the player. So he'll take that extra, you know, he'll, he'll, he won't absorb the contact. He'll kind of go around. He's okay. You know, t- taking 12 more inches to get to the ball. Whereas Macon De Suki, Marvin, these guys are standing their ground and, and they're and they're going to frame it in a way that hopefully they get the decision is kind of what I've been seeing.
0: It's subjective, right? Yeah. And so if you take a frag and Paul will be another one that's very obvious and Muhammad as well, that won't mind taking the extra half step if somebody stands on the ball because if they stand on the ball, that means there's a lot more space to expose in other space, areas of the court. So they're like, okay, you know what? Stand there, that's no worries. Uh, Or you don't clear as well as I would like. That's still no worries. I can get this ball back. You've left a lot of space across from you, behind you. So I can expose that. I'm going to make you work really hard. And long term, I'm going to get the benefit. Right. There's a certain change in what you've said. It gets to 9 all. I'm going to go in there. Now, sometimes the refereeing decision, it's in it. And I know we've sort of said it's there's a lot of ambiguity. It's subjective. You say if somebody goes into someone, it's not as simple as, you know, I went straight for the player the ball's in front of me and therefore I'm asking for a let. Sometimes I could be on the back end of a rally or player A could be in the back end of a rally, absorbing a huge amount of pressure. And when they talk about the inside line and the outside line, okay. uh, Like he should have taken the inside line or she should have taken the outside line and they would have got the ball. And that's why it's an all let. And that's, that's true sometimes. And sometimes it's, you know, even when you hear Lee Drew saying when when the video ref comes on, he's like, I can see case for this. I can see case for that. And of course you can. So then you have to take the context of the rally Sometimes, and again, this is in my humble opinion. Who's been doing the most work? How much space was be, was between the two players when the shot was played? Let's just use an example into the front left. How much space was between the players when player B played the ball into the front left corner to where player A was moving from? Okay, now if if that if player A is on, is, is on the tee, chances are he will have the option, depending on the, the type of shot, if it comes from a boast he'll have the option to go in front or behind and take either of those two lines. Now, if that player is out of position, the shortest route is more than likely going to be in front. Like, like, like not inside or outside. It can be quite, that's where that line is very, very hard to sort of say it's inside or outside because there's, your line is different from a further when you're further away from the middle of the court. So therefore, and this is just one example and there are millions, right? So now therefore your, your line is straight to the ball. Now player B plays a drop that is just way too good. Player A is still going to go into the back of them. Now they're going to ask for that. Of course you would. I mean, you're desperate at nine all for a major event, and it's not just it's not just prize money. It's glory, it's ranking points, it's your living, it's your way of life, it's how you feel, and it's what wakes you up every day. Right? So you're gonna you're gonna ask for that. If that shot's not good enough, probably is a stroke, or they're, they're, at least sorry, that's the way they're calling it. If it is too good, they'll give an no let The issue is is that player B has played an unbelievably good rally, then the final product is just not good enough. And it just sits up a little bit. And all of a sudden it's like, that's a stroke against, even though player A is is out of position. And the only reason sometimes, and again, I'm just, I'm, I picked up, this is where most of the traffic was. And a lot of the issues were during the course of the week. Player A is, is taking the line because they can't go inside or outside because they're out of position in the first place. That ball comes out just a little bit. And all of a sudden it's a different proposition because the ball, I can get that ball. I'm not going to hit a winning shot, but I'm being prevented from playing a ball. And, Probably the next shot that it goes in is a way of getting back level and neutralizing the rally, so the rally starts again. But the referees, the way they're doing it, and I don't blame them. They're, for the most part, they're giving a stroke in that instance, even though player A. And I don't know how much it, they're sort of thinking. How much work has that player done? You know, and and so that that's that's one of the biggest common denominators that I've seen over the course. And I you know I was watching a lot last week, and you've already guys mentioned of saying how many video referee decisions you know, out of the video referees, they're just looking at that one line to the ball, that one shot, and they're not taking in the context of the rally. And so that's where I think it's, there's a lot more layers to it than it's just like that one shot. It's like, there's a lot of build up to that. Sometimes it's just one shot, return a serve, front wall, side wall, back to the middle, sorry son, stroke it is all day long.
3: The, what I want more than anything else is this level of thoughtfulness at the referees. Just that they <laughs> sat down with you for two minutes and they talked about, your thoughts on the front left corner and what's going on. For me, the big thing, I talk about it with my kids all the time, giving access. Are you giving some, access might be that I just shift my hips a little bit to the right or to the left. I'm playing the ball in a certain direction and I'm trying to give you a little bit of access. You know, I'm just trying to give you a path and I'm saying, go that way. That's where you should be going. That's where the ball is. Are you fast enough to go get it? And so are these guys providing some access to the ball or are they really just trying to stand on it? And if you're really just trying to stand on it, then you're not playing the game and how you should be playing it. But the thoughtfulness, that you, how you're describing it, is what I want the refs to have, not some black and white decision that they've been using because it works for them. I want them to be thinking about what's the right decision here? Are they desperate for a lad and they're just kind of trying to go for it? Was there some level of access? Did he try to move out of the way? Where was the shot? If there's that much thought going into it, fine. It's subjective. It is really difficult. But at the same time, it's just like I want them to know that there's a lot of layers and a lot of components to all these things that we're talking about. And the effect is massive, as you said, money, ranking points, confidence. You know, like, uh, you know, uh, it's huge. It's huge. And so, like, I, I totally get it. I just want that level of care to
2: be given to these decisions. It has a gigantic effect on the match. So, how how do you guys how do you guys think they uh, they miss that call eleven all in the fourth in the final with the double bounce on video replay? I just think
0: somebody should. I contest spec savers <laughs>
2: <laughs> like. Spectavers Specsavers,
0: by the way, is an optometry in the UK. Sorry. And that's that's the ad. It's like should have gone to Spec Saver. Somebody walks
2: into a poll. <laughs> that's probably the one situation where, like, you know, you you wish there were three people calling that and not just one video referee. Because well, I think the, I, I, the finals I just, proved the finals proved though that the video referee can just produce some shockers and there's no reviewing the video referee.
0: Well, I think um so I just Well, first of all, I think the only one person needs to... I mean, everyone saw that double bounce. How you can't see the ball bounce twice. I mean, you just just can't uh, defend that, really. I think, all things considered, and I I would particularly tip my hat off to Jason Foster, I thought he did a great job in the final. And and it was such a difficult match to referee. I do think the video referee let him down a bit, and not just in that double bounce. I mean people make mistakes that's a pretty bad one but life goes on i think there was a couple of incidences where he like and like you guys said that they're moving so fast things are happening at an incredible pace at an incredible level and you know they need help
2: with slow-mo video and i, I think there was one or two calls that ferris disagrees with you by the way did you hear his post-game presser oh no i didn't sorry no <laughs> he said thank you psa and thank you refs you did a great job all week except yeah. for this match. <laughs> and then he laughed and it, it was kind of tongue in cheek, which was, which was funny. But um, he, yeah, he said, except for this match. Uh, it's, it's such a hard job. And it's a thankless it, absolu- test, absolutely brutal. I think, you know, all things considered, I think that they're not doing a bad job. The, the other thing is how many times have you told a player that you coached to not stop when you think someone else picked up a double bounce? Cause Ferris, Marvin hit a terrible shot. Ferris just let it bounce twice, and then he lost the point to go down 12-11. That's something that, like, from the time he was probably nine years old, people have been telling him.
1: You can (laughs) also argue that Shabagi in the quarterfinal with Joe Macon did the same thing at match ball when when he volleyed the ball straight and thought he did. Yeah, Joe wasn't going to get it back.
2: uh, That was the same thing. Uh, Maybe that's the one thing they're not coaching in Egypt better than us. (laughs) <laughs> hey listen we got to get a get a play up. till the whistle right joey <laughs> right 100 <100%, Yeah. laughs> I,
3: I must say it 10 times a practice guy hits a great shot i can't believe <laughs> you got that ball back they're fast they get a lot of balls get ready to go play the next shots yeah uh no i think i just i hope there's conversation going on between the players and the rest just that they're kind of on the same page i think it is a hard job it's going really fast but just that they're getting their dialogue and they're saying all right, this is what we want to see happen. This is what we think is an no left, what we think is a stroke. And we play every single day. You know, it'd be great to have, you know, like, you know, one of the pros, you know, ref in the matches because you say, I know that position, I'm there 10 million times. And sometimes I'm like, Mazzarella, how often is he on the court in the front left, you know, digging that ball back? I don't know if he knows the feeling. And so to be, to be fair, I think they'd struggle too, though. Sure. Agreed. Yeah. But at least they'd say, you know what I'm talking about. So at yeah. the very least, I just want the players talking to the refs and saying, hey, this is what we think in that position. That's what's going on. Just with this dialogue. I think I miss the dialogue. I miss JP and, and Peter talking to the ref. You know, the,
0: oh, the fair, Peter he never talked to a ref.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably more for sure.
0: Except you know? for a wave. Thank you. Yeah,
3: yeah. But, you know, it's good. I think it's good if there's some amount of talking, as long as it doesn't slow down the match tremendously. I know?
2: think
0: it's hard, though, in the heat of battle to... I know, like I, I know what you're saying, and I, I think maybe behind the scenes. But then there's always going to be some form of like, you know, part of the conversation. You know, oh, that guy's a good guy. You know, if I, if I call, I'm going to give him a because he was nice to me. You right. know, right. it's hard to kind of break away from that. I I just don't know. I I think there definitely needs to be conversations, maybe as a group of players as opposed to an individual player talking to a referee, like in a formal meeting setting, and so where a host of players can have. A voice of an an opinion with the referees and and try to have constructive decisions. But ultimately it's, you know, you look at every sport and, and squash is interesting because there are so many interpretations of the same thing and it's hard to kind of narrow that down to something where a majority will consistently agree with that. So, but if you look at soccer, like the weekend, oh, the referee, oh, how did you not see that was offside? <laughs> you know, the video goal line technology, Portugal on the weekend, Cristiano Ronaldo giving out, oh, you know, my country's mourning because we didn't get that goal in the last minute. It was a clear goal and the referee came and apologised after. I mean, it, it happens. And I, I love the human element to it as well. Uh, but then that that comes back to you, Joe. It's like, yeah, let's have let's have a little argument there for 30 seconds and then move on.
1: I miss it. I miss it tremendously. Just on the subject of dialogue, I think that's a large part of Lee Drew's role with, with PSA which is to essentially synthesise the opinions of the players and get the feedback from them and then also speak to the referees and get their perspective on what's happened in a previous match and then bring it all together to create a, a essentially a refereeing philosophy or some guidelines. Um, I'm not sure the players and the refs speaking directly wouldn't make things better. I think you need one person responsible for basically reviewing all that and seeing things from the player's perspective. He's obviously played at a high level. He coaches. He's been working with the referees for a while now. I think you need someone in that role to, to bring everything together. Now, a lot of the things that we're discussing are not um, based on the PSA, not setting the right guidelines or not giving instructions to the ref. It comes down to individual errors by the referees. Now, I think that's a separate conversation of how you minimise or resolve those issues, because there were certainly a few fairly controversial. I mean, the the balls being up or down, there was another one in the Marwan and Paul Cole match towards the end where um, Paul was convinced that Marwan had scooped the ball off the side wall, and the referee said it was, was fine. To me, it was clear, but Again, that's not the PSA saying, oh, by the way, if this happens, then that's not a scoop. That's fine. That's, that's a referee that hasn't quite seen that in real time or in slow motion. Um, but yeah, I, I think generally the direction that the PSA is going is positive for the game. They're trying to clean it up. There's a lot more free flowing the squash. They are cutting down on attempts to block. I really like it when someone throws in a massive block and the referee kind of says, well, I don't care how good your shot was. You did not give your opponent any access to that ball, so he's getting a let, even though the ball might have been a perfect tight drive. Um, I think that's what should be done. If if you have a very noticeable movement back into your opponent and you've given them no access to that shot, I think they're entitled to a let because they have no way of proving. We've seen how many balls these guys can get back. It's a lot. So if you don't give them that opportunity to go and get the ball, I think they're entitled to at least a let and sometimes a stroke if it's a weaker shot. Um, but I don't think having a clear cut, okay, we're going to give more no less, is the way forward because the players are too smart that
3: they'll figure out ways to manipulate that to their advantage. Um, You're probably right. You know, I think what they've tried to do in the NFL with the catching, what's a catch, you know, the catching the ball, they've, they've ruined that. Like now you have to carry it to the ground. It's insane. If you see a catch, you know it's a catch. The guy grabbed the ball with two hands. He looked like he controlled it. Like I think it's rather clear. <laughs> Meanwhile they have you know days' sessions on this stuff and so you know you say oh we should introduce more no lets. you have to clear off the ball it should be more strokes in that position no I don't, I don't think that there's one strategy I, I think it is subjective and I think you have to accept that I think that um, I think you're right I think it's probably heading in the right direction but I think that conversation is huge about what's going on and whether or not it's as clean as it could possibly be and you know, I think when you see something in squash, usually you can feel it instinctually. That's let, that's stroke, and and I just want that to kind of be coming through from the refs in terms of like, um, you know, well, it was clear block, and we're gonna give you let, we're gonna give you stroke against because the guy didn't clear the ball. But it's just like that that kind of cleans up the game because there's that honesty and there's that awareness of what's happening. What Arthur was talking about with a true like deep. Um, skill set and awareness of the whole rally the whole situation where the ball was where the guy moved off of it quality of the shot the whole thing has to be looked at and has to be done in one second
0: that's a tough job
3: yeah <laughs> yeah. fair because, play to the PSA though because, I
0: think, sorry I just want to second Just yeah. was I think there there's room for improvement but we all have room for improvement in our everyday lives I just think refs they've come a long way yeah. and hopefully they can keep going
2: yeah You're here. You're here No because even even you know even when someone thinks oh that was definitely a movement that he did to try and prevent the person from getting the ball maybe he just thought the guy was going to go the other way so he was doing extra to get out of his way but then they took the same line and it looks nasty when it's not there's just so many nuances and yeah, yeah you can't yeah it, it's hard cuz you can't assume someone's doing something to be to you know be uh be nasty about it but you also can't assume everyone's doing everything for the for the good of the good of the game Um, just one final thing on
1: refereeing it's not related to this discussion but I thought it was very noticeable and significant that uh, John Massarella did not referee any of Marwan's matches in the certainly in the quarters, the semi's, and the final. Although he, he,
0: he did the quarters, he was a video ref in the quarters. <laughs> he, <laughs> was. He, had a, he had a funny comment. Who's the video referee? John Mass, "Of course, of course."
2: Yeah. <laughs> but <What a> guy!
1: <laughs> we've, joked, we've joked about the fact that a couple of the tournaments last year, sort of after the, the, the tour came back, there was very noticeable tension between Marwan and John. And I think you could almost argue that. Uh, it cost him one of the matches where he just, John was out to send him a message. And I can't, I think it might have been against Paul Cole in the Tarek Montar. Against, yeah, it was Tarek at the Egyptian Open in front of the. Whoa, table. hang
0: on there. CFAX. What's happening? That's twice in the last two episodes, huh? <laughs> what was the last one? I don't know, but it was something. We had to correct <laughs> you on something.
1: Well, I've got a great stat for you coming up, actually. So you referenced the interview that Marwan gave. Talking about wanting to be well, he wants to win the worlds and the British, the remainder of this season, and also get number one in the world. Who was the last player that won both of those titles at the same time, and also who was the last player to do it in the same calendar year?
0: So, but to hold world number one and win those two titles in the same calendar year?
1: Yeah, only one. One person's done it in the same calendar year. Two other people have done it where they they were title holders of both at the same time, but they had won them in separate calendar years. Shibana? No, Shabana never won the British for a start. So I'm going
0: to go back. I, I think so. The first one, so world number one, world champion, British Open champion. I, I could sound this 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 might not work out, but I, I think it's Yancher.
1: You're correct. Yeah. 1996 was the last per- yeah. person to have both of those titles in the same year and be world number one. In fact, just both of those titles in the same year hasn't been done since Janja in 1996. Now, um Rami did win. He won the Worlds at the end of 2012, and then he won the British in 2013. So he held both of them in the same season, but different years. And was also number one at the time. Are you going to give ah. us a
0: chance to guess the second one, or are you just going to just ruin it for us? <laughs> We're having a little competition. You got to raise oh. your hands,
2: guys. Wait. <laughs> I was going to say Rami. That was going to oh, be my
1: guess. Yeah. Well, someone else has also done it. Um, Rami's the most recent, but there was someone that did it just before Rami.
0: Nick. Nick Matthew.
1: Yeah, correct. Twenty eleven. Yeah, Nick won the uh, world's. R-
2: Rotterdam yeah. in 2011, and then he won the British in in London in 2012. Unbelievable! Wow. These
3: guys are the real deal. Yeah. Five points. Oh. I gotta go, guys. Thanks for having me. You know, like hopefully everything's going the right direction. You know, I might send a letter, but you know, maybe I'll get involved. You know. So anyway,
0: uh, good stuff. Nice to Joe. Good? Thanks for joining yeah, us, man. I think- nice you, Joey. Cheers, man. That was Joe Rejo. So as we wrap up, uh, anyone else that we want to? Anything else we want to sort of take away from the event?
1: Yeah, another another performance that probably deserves to mention would be Zahed Salim reaching his first ever platinum quarterfinal. Um, kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, Salma Hani in the women's event the week before, where the draw kind of opened up, but then they stepped in and took advantage. Salma obviously made the semis, and Zahid didn't quite make the semis. He lost to Tarek in the quarters in four. But... Um, he beat Gawad Gawad was in, injured but still a good win and then he backed that up with a, with a great result against Castagne actually um, and then really looked threatening against Tarek it was a tight match seemed like he matched them physically just maybe didn't play the big point I watched the first two games of that and he, he lost both of them but he was right in it until like 8 all, 9 all, um, and then Tarek just played a couple of big rallies towards the end of each game
2: yeah. Just overall thoughts was just how, how good it was to, you know, have, have Muhammad back in this event. Um, you know, obviously with, with Macon taking him out and Paul, you know, narrowly losing to Marwan who wins the tournament. And then you've got De Suki kind of saving match balls against Farag, um, a on all their heels, no Diego and, um, and, uh, sorry who am I missing I'm going through the draw uh Gawad losing Ali and Gawad yeah Gawad having to having to pull up um just the depth and the parity is pro- pretty insane right now so unreal to watch yeah yeah it was
0: great to see Shabagi. i would be interested to see how he bounces back from this
1: one interesting thing in Shabagi was that I don't know if you guys saw the end of the match against Macon, but I've never seen Shibagi look so tired in a match in my life. I mean, he was at 11 all and virtually just didn't run for a ball because he was so exhausted. Yeah, yeah, that was surprising.
0: Hey, you've never seen him. You've never seen him on a Monday morning in a practice match, huh? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I I agree, actually, yeah. But I think that's maybe just, you you can't, and I know nobody played an event for three months but he hasn't played an event for four, maybe five. Yeah, and he also
1: only played two of those five events that we had. We had Manchester, which he won, and then he missed the World Tour finals in Egypt, he missed the Egyptian Open. He then came back and played Qatar, where he lost early to Hussein Ibrahim, but then he missed the next Black Ball Open. So that's a lot of scores to miss, basically. He basically played two events in a 12-month period from Canary Wharf last year. Yeah, I mean, that that's, tells its own story. But I,
0: I think, you know, with Manchester coming up and then by the time, I would say with this, with another one in Manchester, not that Manchester is a, a small event, it's, it's huge, but given the opportunity to play more matches and to, you know, get that uh, competition fitness. Momentum. and m- Momentum. Look at this guy, huh? You're back on CFAX again. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I, I do think he's, he's going to be right back in the mix.
1: That's one of the great things about, this black ball open is that we now have a series of events confirmed to to build on it. Um, obviously, when we had the last one in December, we kind of knew there was going to be a gap in the tour coming. Yeah. Um, but now we have Manchester confirmed. Elguna it looks like it's going to go ahead, and then we also have the big ones that Marwan's targeting: the British Open and the the Worlds in Chicago. So good, good sort of end to the season. I would say start. <laughs> it feels like it, but yeah, technically it's the end of the 2020-2021 season, um, <laughs> the second half anyway. Um, and one final stat to round off. Um, so Shabagi obviously lost in the quarters, and um, Farag also lost in the quarters. When was the last time both of them failed to make the semi-finals of a major event?
0: 2015.
1: Not quite. Farag wasn't actually at that level that early. but
0: He was, yeah. He made semi finals of the World World Open in
1: 2015. Well, ranking wise. R- oh, ranking wise, yeah. He was off, yeah. Yeah. He the last time was in Alguna in 2017, where I had the draw up earlier. I think um, Goji ended up winning that tournament, but um, Farag lost in the second round which was his first match of the tournament oh sorry no first round because there was qualifying he lost to diego as the seventh seed and then Shabagi lost to marwan and i don't know if you remember that was the match where marwan basically walked through him in like 24 minutes yeah Um, i remember that yeah probably the, the only time i've seen shibagi not compete like the sort of competitor we know he is
0: Probably his only bad
1: day at the office in, like, 15 years. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. And then Gautier went on and won that, beating Galad in the final. There we go.
0: All right, guys. Well, that's a wrap. Looking forward to uh, our next episode where we have the general coming in. Happy days. Uh, If you like what you hear, check us out on social, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And, uh, yeah, cheers. Cheers, fellas.
2: Cheers.